Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I am joined again by my friends George Dunn and Jason Eberl for a discussion of Westworld. They are academics, they have written at length about philosophy and pop culture or what philosophy can tell us about how to take the most interesting things directors and writers put into their work. Our subject today is Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy's Westworld, HBO TV show now premiering its second season, and it's a fine companion for our previous conversation, which was about Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan's movies together. These are very interesting, very educated, very thoughtful writers who are also surprisingly very popular and very interested in the topics of the day. So they make a very good fit for academia on the one hand, or philosophy even, and on the other hand, pop culture and the anxieties of the times. Thank you for joining me again. Please introduce yourselves and let's get off to the races. You go ahead, George. Oh, I'm George Dunn, and along with Jason Eberle, I am the co-editor of The Philosophy of Christopher Nolan. Jason and I have also edited a book on Sons of Anarchy and Philosophy. Right now, one of the things I'm working on is a volume on René Girard and the Western philosophical tradition, and another book, a collection of essays on the reception of the uh, German-Jewish-American philosopher Leo Strauss in China. Those are my main projects right now. And I'm uh, Jason Erbel, as you heard, and you know worked with George on the Christopher Nolan book, Sons of Anarchy book, also done books on Star Wars, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica. Most recently, had an essay published in the soon-to-be-released Westworld and Philosophy book. So I'd be happy to talk about my thoughts on the first season in that essay. I teach primarily medical ethics at St. Louis University. That's where my primary research is, working currently on human enhancement technology, which, since some of those potential technologies can be cybernetic, ties into our theme for today as well. Yeah, there's a convergence somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> first, thanks for joining me. Let's try and talk Westworld Season 1, the sci-fi and the Western wrapped into one, two of America's great passions the past and the origins of America, and on the other hand, the future and maybe the destiny or doom of America. In a nearby future, somewhere in the 2050s, there's a timestamp, I think, in one of the late episodes, it suggests when the action is set. In this near future, you get all sorts of technologies that apparently create new kinds of humans. That's the Blade Runner half. And the suggestion throughout the show is that we're burdened by our mortality and we may want to push that burden on somebody else's shoulders. And so these robots come into being. At this point they're in a park that is Disney, but at the same time has all the AI of say Google or Facebook. It's some neo-feudal tech corporate giant merger for people with enough money to enjoy themselves. People go there to indulge desires they could never indulge in civilized society. It's like the movies or computer games, but you get a certain sense of agency that's new. You can do things to other beings that deny the sentience and the moral agency of those beings. In short, it's an appeal to violence, and again, that suggests that this future is really unpleasant. It's making people want to take out their warlike passions in the only place where they can, at least those few who can afford it. It's deeply elitist and at the same time deeply populist in that all these people act out this way out of a sense of being put upon. They're running from the real world, they're not running the real world. That seems to be run by corporations that are almost unaccountable. So that's the sci-fi half of the story. The western half of the story is much harder to figure out. Clearly the writers are very interested in the westerns and there are all sorts of suggestions from geography to names that go back to John Ford or the legend of Jesse James. But the western is on the one hand deconstructed in a fairly cynical way as nostalgia for a better time, the time of lawlessness. And at the same time, it's rehearsed because it allows for some story of heroism. And one way to look at how the Western is both retained and turned upside down is that in Westworld, the natives are called hosts and the people who are merely tourists are called newcomers. And this time, the Indians get to kill the cowboys, it turns out. It's a West where the slaves get to fight for their freedom and win because they are technologically empowered. And that brings us back to the sci-fi part of this duality of the show. 
So it's a fascinating look at genres and at American ways of trying to figure out who are we and what are we doing with ourselves and what's coming to us, what fate is upon us. Yeah, so to start off looking from kind of a film and historical perspective, why do people, particularly Americans, since it's the American West, but not just Americans, you know, what is the appeal? And you kind of alluded to it. It's almost nostalgia for a time of pure freedom. You know, again, I think of the appeal of Sons of Anarchy and the idea of living an outlaw life. There's a certain freedom, even though it's fraught with danger. And I would actually make the argument that the more you try you make yourself free, the actual less free you become. It's just different rules and different sources of rules that are constraining you. But there's certainly a yearning for that, especially when one lives in a culture constrained either by the forces of capitalism in the sense of multinational corporations determining things, or whether it's oppressive government setting the rules. Either way, if one is not politically or economically empowered, one can very easily feel oneself a slave and so seeks escape in any way one can. The other point I made, and this is uh, one reason I love having these types of conversations, it always gives me new insight. And one of the things you mentioned, Tito, was the Delos Corporation comparing to like Google and Facebook. The way I always perceived Westworld in the first season was they created these stories and then people went to the stories and once the newcomer was in it, the story morphed towards their reactions and actions they took. But I just start thinking with Facebook, how much does the Delos Corporation know about the newcomers before they even get there? Is Westworld already crafted and I'm thinking of the scene where William first arrives and they got the clothes laid out and the guns and the black hat and the white hat. You know, is that just the standard layout for everybody? Or was that already particularly tailored to him because they've been through his social media? They know who he is before he's even arrived, which makes Westworld both more um, an interestingly personalized vacation experience, but also more insidious. That's an interesting question. I actually had not thought about that. One thing that occurred to me while you were speaking a moment ago, Titus, is what it is that is drawing people to Westworld. And, and you said they're running from the real world that's dominated by these large, impersonal, unaccountable corporations. But I think there's another answer to that question, and that's given by the man in black, who we later learn is William. In episode five of season one, he talks about the world out there, and he says that it's a world of plenty where everybody's needs are taken care of. He describes it as a fat, soft teat that people cling to their entire lives. But there's one thing that is absent in this world, the sense of purpose. And that may be bound up with the fact that people's needs are taken care of so effortlessly. So they don't have to struggle. There are no obstacles. People don't have to take pains to achieve any of their goals. Yeah. And that also implies, of course, that they cannot learn who they are because they never act. Right, right. And it's precisely because everything is handed to them that what's missing from their lives is suffering. And somehow that absence of suffering is tantamount to an absence of meaning. And the man in black, William, is preoccupied with the question of meaning. He pursues the maze because he thinks that at the center of the maze he'll discover some source of meaning. When I listen to these speeches, it brings to mind what Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, says about the last man. In Nietzsche's poetic masterpiece, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Zarathustra gives a speech in which he warns against what human beings are becoming. And what we're becoming, according to Zarathustra, is the last man, the man who no longer has any high aspirations, no longer strives because he believes that he's already the apex of human progress, right? Conquered nature, eliminated suffering. There's nothing left to do but indulge these little harmless pleasures. I think that's where we're at. That's what society has become in Westworld. And that's what draws at least some people, those who are interested in the thrill of violence. What draws them to Westworld is the emptiness, the vapid nature of this world that human beings have created. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's, of course, part of the insight of science fiction. Think about Star Trek. It's a world that's so unbearable because of its peaceful prosperity that anybody who has spirit runs away to the edges of the universe, risking oblivion, annihilation, rather than living with that kind of comfort. Right. Well, yeah, we all remember how boring the early episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation were because Gene Roddenberry wanted his humans to be so perfect in their spandex jumpsuits. No conflict among the cast, and so you have to have all the aliens, some of whom were exhibiting unfortunate racial stereotypes, to create conflict. 
They were uh, amplifying various aspects of humanity, whether it's capitalism with the Ferengi or warrior violence with the Klingons or political machinations with the Romulans. And yeah, it's like, okay, you have to create these aliens to create a mirror to humanity because you made the humans almost dull. (laughs) I mean, you can only listen to Picard quote Shakespeare so many times, (laughs) as much as I love Star Trek. (laughs) Yep. And so here in Westworld, you see a world that's alien. It's an underworld of fully robotic and technologically empowered creations that are mostly inscrutable. You can control them at whim in some sense, but it's emphatically like an iPhone or an iPad. You just push buttons. If the buttons stop working, you have no idea what's happening anymore. Your understanding of being and causation have actually been stripped from you by technology. And so in the overworld, this recreation of Monument Valley of an old West town and all sorts of Western locales and myths, there you've stepped forward into something that's either predetermined by technology precisely so that you can experience with aliens that look so much like us all these old conflicts, all these parts of human nature that are now of museum interest apparently in a world that has solved problems. Or, on the other hand, you've stepped off into a world of dreams where the soul plays out all over again, whether it's the conflicts of freedom and slavery, or, on the other hand, the conflicts of self-discovery. As you put it in Star Trek, the next generation wants to have perfect people. The conflicts are going to have to come from somebody else. You push them off to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So also here, they're pushed off to hosts, to sentient robots, and they have to reenact the drama of humanity, starting with self-awareness, with discovering that they are, in some sense, themselves, each one particularly, caught in a conflict between what he has to obey, and on the other hand, doubts and desires and longings that are half-expressed and half-understood. And there, these robots discover that they're sort of human. In their suffering, they take possession of their past. They have memories that cannot be suppressed any longer, and there they give the truth of the West. You're going to have to be a hero, you're going to have to take possession of your own actions and memories and try somehow to give an account of yourself, to achieve some self-understanding. Westworld is supposed to only provide the illusion of that freedom and of that heroism, but it turns out to give you the real thing just not in a way that the people who go there as tourists can survive. Well, now you're actually touching on the theme in the chapter I wrote for the about-to-be-released Westworld and Philosophy book, because the question I want to take on was whether the actions one takes in Westworld could actually make one a better or worse person. Can Westworld function as a polis in the Aristotelian sense? a place for cultivating virtue or vice. And yeah, one typically thinks, well, it's a fantasy world, so any actions one takes are ersatz actions, and one can't really develop one's moral character within that type of environment. That's part of the critique Robert Nozick gives in his experience machine thought experiment. We wouldn't want to just plug into an experience machine, partly because it couldn't help us become who we are, who we're meant to be. But Westworld is not simply a passive set of experiences being fed to us. One takes voluntary action. And although it's created by others with these narratives and stories and characters, is that so different from the real world? We're thrust into, at birth, a world with its own ongoing narrative that we did not write, with characters surrounding us, with their own stories, and we're just reacting to all that. And we form our moral character by our reactions. We have limited degrees of control in the real world. We have limited degrees of control in Westworld. And so in reacting to the narratives that are embedded, whether it's Westworld or the outside world, we can still formulate virtue and vice. Robert Ford says, the purpose of Westworld is not to show people who we are, but who we might become. Going back to your point, Titus, yeah, the world outside of Westworld is banal and people need this escapism to, again, truly form their characters. And William, or the man in black, has been changed by his experiences in Westworld. He's become something of a monster in the real world without even realizing it. His wife committed suicide because living with him was such a horror show. But he didn't even realize her death was not accidental until his daughter tells him. His daughter pushes him away because she's also come to see him as a monster. So he's, without even fully being aware of it, been shaped by these experiences, playing the villain within Westworld. 
yeah, and he's such an interesting character, partly because he's the double personality of the first season. We see him both as a young man and as an old man, and it's very hard, because of the way the plot is structured, to see whether he's one whole person, whether these are two halves of the same being, whether there is indeed any unity to being human, or you could radically shift between being a white hat and a black hat. This character is not just the focus in that sense of the show and the prime example of moral change and some form of self-discovery or self-oblivion through this new form of adventure fiction. But he is also the owner of it, the majority shareholder of the corporation that runs this thing among however many other properties. He's somehow trapped in the fiction that he owns. And that brings up this question of whether he really understands Westworld and whether he really owns it, if he cannot use it well. So the ontological question, the personal identity question, you're exactly right. The choice of the filmmakers to depict it lends itself to this view where the man in black is arguably a different person from the young William. Not just the passage of time, but the changes in his moral character he has become a different person, and we only see the stark duality. So we can ask the question, you know, how can these coexist within the same man? And of course, that's the biggest change in William. His moral projects have shifted. When he first entered Westworld, he was not really concerned about finding meaning. As he says, I was happy with my life. I didn't come here to really escape my life. You know, he was dragged into it by his future brother-in-law. He was one of the last men. Good, yeah. So his evolution is, as George pointed out earlier, to now want to find meaning. And he seems to start that project, you know, towards the end of his time as a young man in Westworld. And so arguably that project is still continuing 40 years hence and is one means of unifying the two, even though they seem starkly different personalities. Yeah, yeah. bring Nietzsche back into the discussion. Nietzsche emphasizes that each person is actually a multitude of souls, drives, competing for dominance. So it's not simply that here you are today and here you are 40 years from now and the two personalities seem very dissimilar and then the problem is continuity between the two of them. We become different people from hour to hour. The angry man asserts himself and then becomes the sulking man. Then he becomes the remorseful man. Each of these drives is offering an interpretation of our world, interpretations that are hard to unify. But for Nietzsche, that is the task of the individual. Nietzsche talks about the task of becoming what one is, giving yourself a project that can bring unity to these otherwise incoherent and competing drives. Yeah, and this is, of course, again, tied up with fiction, because in fiction you can identify at some level with various characters and their actions and thus bring out possibilities within yourself that you wouldn't otherwise bring out, like uh, Jason quoted the man who runs Westworld, Robert Ford. It's about what you might become. And, of course, the character of that becoming is in question. Is it temporary or is the change irreversible? So Westworld is a testing ground. It makes people who they are at some level, starting with this strange man who is supposed to be its owner, but who ends up trapped in it. His quest for meaning ends up making him something like the puppet of the double creator, Westworld. And this recalls to mind the poet Shelley's remark, poets are the unacknowledged rulers of mankind, a sentiment with which Nietzsche agreed often, emphatically. It is the creators of Westworld who came up with the world, the misunderstanding of which has led the man in black to his lifelong quest. I think, George, you mentioned uh, Nietzsche Zarathustra here to point out that he's a nihilist. He is, in the metamorphosis of the soul, a lion, whereas most other people are just camels. They're mm -hmm. enduring and moving on, whereas he has learned violence or war to assert himself. I think for Nietzsche, most people are not even camels. Becoming a camel is the first stage of the transformation that allows you to become ultimately a creator. The camel is the one who voluntarily takes on heavy burdens. Yes, um, moral projects. I don't think that's the last man, and I don't think that's William at the very beginning. I mean, he speaks of his life as being one of pretense, being inauthentic. So he's just someone who's going with the flow. He's engaged to this young woman. He's faithful to her, evidently not because he has a strong passion for her, but because that's what a good man does. That's what's expected of him. 
it's in Westworld that he first gets the opportunity to break out of that and express these sides of his personality that he had always suppressed, perhaps so effectively that he wasn't even aware that they were there. He had, for all his wealth, even as a young man, about to marry into even more wealth, he's trapped by the social mores. His impending marriage almost seems like an arranged marriage, politically beneficial arrangement, lacking in passion. So again, this whole idea of pure autonomy is a fiction, both in the real world and within Westworld, but yet the Westworld narrative allows him to break free of that, but then in so doing, he begins cultivating other habits. If we see this through an Aristotelian lens, then character is all about habit formation, and habits, once formed, are very hard to break, and for Augustine, it's easier to become vicious and much harder to cease being vicious, and it's much more difficult to become virtuous. But given what George was saying earlier about the various desires and needing to create some sort of project over them, seems to indicate, too, that, again, going on back to Plato and Socrates, for reason to master the passions is not an easy thing for it to do. And so indulging those desires, which we obviously see a lot of the visitors of Westworld do, is just easier and more fun. But then over time, does one see the emptiness of that or the emptiness of their life in the real world? There's the task of mastering the passion. We can debate whether William actually succeeds at doing that. But also, there's the awakening of passion. William does not seem to have been a passionate man at all. And it's only once those passions are awakened that there is that possibility of finding a project that can give order to him. That there's that possibility of self-formation, creating a self. I think of Kierkegaard who says that most of us don't have a self. Most of us are just so enthralled through the crowd that we have no individuality whatsoever. And so the first step in becoming a self is to awaken some kind of passion that can lead us out from the crowd. And with William, the passion that is first awakened in him is an erotic passion, mm -hmm. is his desire for Dolores. It seems it's only because that erotic passion has been awakened in him that he discovers his passion for violence goes on this violent campaign to find Dolores, and he discovers in the course of that that he has a taste for it. It seems that passion for violence completely crowds out that earlier eros. And something similar is happening with Maeve, where it's not erotic passion, but a mother's love for her daughter. But it's still that passionate regard for another, which not only causes her to be able to break free from the crowd of hosts, who are oblivious to the nature of their own existence, but then who's also more than willing and more than capable of employing violence to achieve her ends. Yes, that's all. And it's very useful to contrast these two characters, because they sit on opposite sides of the law. William discovers at some point, like most newcomers, that Westworld is a world of lawlessness, at least for them, with impunity. And so their way, in as much as they have any to separate from mores, conventions, laws, the expectations of how to behave and what to believe, their separation from that comes through violence and lawlessness. It's tyranny. For Maeve, it's upside down. She discovers love of family, and that drags her out of a world where she's a prostitute, and she's supposed to be a clever, cynical woman who promises some idea of freedom, but has no understanding or use of it for herself. And stepping from lawlessness into the law, family love, she begins to become herself. Yeah, what's interesting, too, about Maeve is she not only is in a fantasy world, but within that fantasy world, she plays a role of selling fantasies. Sex with a professional is not, obviously, lovemaking, so she and her girls are selling a fantasy. So she starts out in a fantasy world selling fantasies and is the first host to break out of that. So she had arguably the furthest to go, but maybe because she was selling a fantasy within a fantasy that allowed her to become more aware of the fantastical nature of everything around her and to be more willing mentally to accept that there's a whole nother world, something different. Whereas maybe other hosts might be a little bit more freaked out by discovering the true nature of their reality. Yeah, with Maeve, you see, as you so well pointed out, this combination of character and circumstance. Her character is tied up with duplicity, deception, fantasy, and with stirring desires in others that one does not feel oneself. 
And on the other hand, her circumstances are she's on the receiving end of relationships and attitudes and behaviors that are ugly, undignified, and immoral and illegal. It's easier perhaps for the oppressed to say that a system of rule is unjust and to see it for what it is if it pretends to be just while perpetrating violence on the innocent. And uh, it is this combination of her circumstances as a slave and her character as a myth-maker and the cynical one at that, a rather intelligent and inquisitive poet that allows her to begin her escape, first of all from the mental shackles, from the illusion that Westworld simply is that it has no underground, that it has no complexities or deceptions. She's the opposite of the newcomers. She starts out as a victim and tries to liberate herself in the direction of morality and law and family, whereas they go the other way. They go from some kind of morality we would recognize into tyranny. She is nevertheless alike to the man in black, to William, in certain ways. She thinks she sees through Westworld. She figures that the game is rigged. She becomes mm-hmm. cynically wise, worldly wise, and then has to struggle with that. And unlike the man in black, William, whose own family hates him, she seems to think that family love could be the thing to sacrifice for. So there's something outside of herself that keeps her sane. She thinks that freedom means running away from this world, and for obvious reasons, she's a slave in this world. But then she realizes that freedom should mean something else, getting something you love, getting something worth loving. Yeah, there are a couple interesting things about May that help explain why she is able to accomplish what she does. And they have to do with the way that she was programmed. One attribute key to her success as a madam in a whorehouse is that she's very good at reading people's desires. That equips her to look beneath the surface. But there's another interesting speech that she gives a couple times. She talks about when she first came to this country, there was a voice that she heard in her head. Obviously, this was a voice created by her designers. But the voice says to her, you're in the new world and you can be whoever the fuck you want. And so that idea of being able to create herself, being the author of her own existence, being the author of her own story, is present with her from the very beginning. And then I think when these memories start coming back to her, being a mother which caused her to question her reality and to explore these other dimensions of her personality. That's what triggers her ability to see through the facade of Westworld. You keep referring to her as a slave. You're absolutely right. But she leads a slave rebellion. The irony is what enables her to do this is traits that have been programmed into her. Yep. This brings up uh, Hegel and the dialectic of master and slave. Mm-hmm. The domination of the master over the slave ends up making the master weak, whereas the slave acquires knowledge, acquires mm-hmm. arts, and the arts are supposed to be to the purpose of the master's whim and will, but the arts have a character of their own, and they have their own relationship to being human, even as a slave, and therefore can lead a slave to wisdom of a kind and a certain form of empowerment that ends up with him rebelling against the master and trying for some kind of equality. The slave is more clever than the master. Exactly. He can objectify his will in the world, whereas the master can only objectify his will in the slaves. And this is why the newcomers to Westworld don't learn much about themselves. They don't want to acknowledge that they're like their slaves. Whereas the robots very much want to say they are like their masters. They too deserve freedom and certainly not to be treated like slaves. And this brings up a related matter, the tragic teaching. You learn by suffering. In suffering, these characters begin to learn that they are who they are. And this would seem to be because there is something unpredictable about suffering. You don't know if it will break you. You don't know what it will do to you. Bernard Arnold notes that as the robots become self-aware, some of them actually make this journey inward. Some of them just become mad. So the very thing that has the possibility of awakening you to full-blown selfhood also is a source of destruction. As you said, it's suffering that does that. And that's why Dolores has Arnold in her head as her guide, has those memories of those early conversations where he's trying to guide her to self-consciousness, where she finally sees herself sitting across from her. 
Maeve with the voice that told this is the new world what George quoted she really heard that voice and that was her telling a story of her experience or simply a narrative and there was never a voice that she consciously heard or whether Arnold was manipulating her as well the only thing we know about Arnold's purposes he wanted to lead the host to self-awareness and in that way to bring down Westworld whether things are unfolding exactly as Arnold had anticipated and hoped we don't know but one of the other interesting aspects about all this is that, as George said, without that guide, again, a lot of slaves aren't ready for freedom. Obviously, we all disagree with Aristotle that there are natural slaves, but certainly there are conditioned slaves. We can all become enslaved or entrapped in the circumstances of our lives. Not all of us are ready to break free of that. Again, I think of Nietzsche when the madman comes to declare that God is dead and to break us all out of the entrapment of that mythos, people aren't ready for it. And so probably most of the hosts aren't ready to break free. You know, Dolores and perhaps Maeve as well has needed this guiding voice, but eventually they have to take on the voice themselves. Yeah. At one point, Ford remarks that Arnold's key insight was that suffering is the thing that leads to their awakening. The pain of recognizing that the world is not as you want it to be. A discrepancy between what is and what ought to be. And that brings us to the existentialist insight. Selfhood precisely is this capacity for negation of the world as it is. Titus, I mean, you mentioned Hegel. And Hegel talks about how the slave transforms the world so that it is more in accordance with his own desires. And that's the nature of the self, at least according to existentialist philosophers. And the drive to do that only arises when one finds the world unsatisfactory as it is. That explains what Ford describes as Arnold's insight, that it's suffering that leads the host to their awakening. And Jason, I mean, you made the point of the voice of Arnold that has been guiding them. You're absolutely right. In order for them to achieve full selfhood, that voice has to become their own voice. To vote Kant, they're acting heteronymously originally, and they have to become autonomous. Right, right. But the self emerges when they establish this relationship to that voice and claim that voice as their own. So again, I think it's when Kierkegaard describes the self, the self is a kind of folding back on itself. He speaks of the self as a kind of relation between the self and the self. And it's the emergence of that voice as the voice of the self that makes that possible. Yeah, there are basic experiences that Westworld provides here in some strange imitation of theodicy, of the justification of evil. How do you know that the creator, that God is just? Because even his evil serves a purpose. It creates suffering, and that suffering has two characters. One of them is anger at injustice. You see things that are unfair, you get angry at them, and then you realize that you are a you. There is a you that gets angry, that rejects the world in some way, and wants to defend oneself against that world. And the other experience is desire, yearning for something, an incompleteness that calls out to something else that might complete it. And these are ways to relate to the world that point out that there is a, a you that relates to the world and are the beginning stages in suffering of a new kind of being, of being human. The revelation that builds throughout season one and that drives some crazy and that also drives a revolution and it also drives a question about self-knowledge that seems to be developing in season two. The revelation is that being is striving. Westworld is not in fact under systematic scientific technological control from below, from outside, and everybody is automated. Westworld in fact mysteriously allows for freedom, and freedom means striving, being incomplete, fearing death, trying to deal with how different other people are and how much war is inevitable because of different opinions about how to live. In all these ways, individuality, being human and trying to become fully human, emerges in Westworld as the necessary but necessarily imperfect order imposed by the creators collapses. Yes, that's a real good insight about the connection with the Odyssey. One of the ones that I like, I'm not saying it's a perfect explanation of the problem of evil, I don't think there has been, or maybe even can be a perfect explanation of the problem of evil, but one response is John Hicks, The Soul-Making Theodicy. He says in his book, Evil and a Loving God, without evil, we would all be a bunch of feckless Adams and Eves, you know, running through the garden with our fig leaves, and it'd just be a childlike existence. 
that's not freedom. There's times we'd all maybe fondly look back on our child and say, oh, so simpler back then. Adulting is hard. But I don't think any of us would literally trade our life as an adult with our responsibilities and the bills we got to pay and all the other ups and downs just mm-hmm. to be a child with our G.I. Joe toys. I know um, what you mean, but I'm not sure I can agree. To speak to George's earlier point, we are sorely tempted to become last men. The mm-hmm. most successful and futuristic among us want to bring back the mummies of ancient Egypt to cryogenize their bodies in case they die, or their brains at least, so that they can be resurrected as machines, because machines don't cry, don't feel pain, and aren't mortal. And many others of us have populated the internet with cat videos and cute animals <laughs> because they seem to be as clever as us, but much happier. They don't <laughs> seem to be terrified of mortality. They don't seem to be bored with everything in this world because it can't justify our mortality. So the temptation to abandon our freedom, resent it as a trap, as a doom, is incredibly powerful and that seems to be part of our condition. I would agree with you. The temptation is certainly there. I just think, and this is Nozick's alleged insight with the experience machine thought experiment, if the offer were actually put in front of us, and if we truly rationally understood what we had to give up in order to have that, to use your analogy, the cat-like existence, any reasonable person would not make that choice. Even though you agreed the temptation is there, and maybe the less reflective among us would make that choice. Certainly we make the choice to retreat into the fantasy worlds of video game playing and Star Trek and whatnot. But then we come back to the real world. The other point you mentioned, immortality, you know, reminds me of Bernard Williams' essay on the tedium of immortality. You know, we're tempted by the thought of living forever, but if immortality is simply just longevity, still, we'd reach a point where we would have said everything, done everything, experienced everything. And to go back to a theme, if we can't formulate new projects to give our life meaning, go back to William, William was already living the tedium of immortality. If immortality were granted to William when he first enters Westworld, man, that would be a horribly boring existence for him. Yep, and of course the hosts, they're like that too. You can take all the suffering out of Westworld, but then you're still left with robots who just do the same things continuously. Well, yeah, at one point, Ford, I believe it's in a conversation with Bernard, speaks of the existence of the host as being purer, better than our existence, precisely because they lack our self-awareness. One could honestly believe that that kind of existence would be preferable to an existence that involves striving and suffering. Jason, you talked about the veil of soul-making. That's how Hick describes the world. That's the centerpiece of his theodicy. The reason that there is suffering in the world is because it allows us to achieve virtues like compassion, courage, fortitude. That wouldn't be possible in a world where all of our needs were taken care of. We would remain children, but at least according to Ford, perhaps purer. So what do we gain from this capacity for good and evil, moral choice? But what comes with that? The possibility of becoming like William, utterly depraved and wicked. Yeah. Right? And, you know, Ford recreates himself as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both the creators of Westworld are very interesting, and they're both men of their word. Ford does, as you pointed out, make himself a child again, and Arnold does sacrifice himself to give freedom to his creation. And Mm -hmm. they're very interesting characters precisely because of this understanding of freedom. Ford says, they are free under my control, free of mortality, doubt, fear, misery, all the dark possibilities. But that's just what Ford wants. It is not the only possibility. You could think of freedom in the other sense of being free to deal with these things, to experience them. And that's what Arnold or Bernard wants to do. The gift that Ford gives mankind in this new incarnation to this new creation of man is forgetfulness. Without Mm -hmm. memory, there is no suffering. And that, of course, also means that there's no anticipation of suffering. Whereas the gift Arnold or Bernard brings is the gift of suffering and what it makes possible. It doesn't predetermine, but it makes possible a very serious change, a transformation of children into adults. This speaks, of course, to our basic moral ideas. We do love our children because they're purer than us, because they don't think about murdering people upon disagreement. They wouldn't turn social media into what we've done to it. That's genuine. But it's also true that we in some ways look down on them. We certainly think of them, if not as slaves, then as severely imperfect and in need of rule without consent. 
it doesn't matter if kids don't want to go to sleep or eat, they still have to. Or, or it doesn't matter what they want to do, dangerous things have to be prohibited. And the question is whether in the future human beings could still be human or whether technological power would transform all of us into safe, peaceful, prosperous, comfortable creatures, but completely without moral agency. Nobody would end up being the protagonist even in his life story. There would be no such thing as heroes anymore. And I think that brings us back to Nietzsche's last man. But memory is what makes possible learning, and learning is what makes possible innovation. Memory is also what makes possible having a project. Memory almost demands that you construct some kind of project that can link the past and the present and give a kind of coherence to your existence. And I think it's when the hosts begin to construct projects for themselves that exceed their narrative loops that's when they really make the step towards self-awareness and towards freedom. And William, the man in black, at the beginning of his arc, he's also in a loop, acting out a script that has been written for him and in countless other men like him. In Westworld, he discovers the possibility of creating a different kind of project for himself. Unfortunately, it's a totally nihilistic project that creates tremendous suffering on both the robots in Westworld and to the members of his own family. Yep. Becoming oneself means dealing with individuality, and memory is always my memory, not shared with other people. And so the problem of individuality is that the projects you might come up with are crazy, that in being alone you'll become fully insane, cutting yourself off from the reasonableness of moral consensus and majority opinion. So stepping beyond that agreement, no longer acting as you're expected to, brings out all these dangerous possibilities and shows that there's a political level and that there's a psychological level of individuality. At the political level, individuality would mean freedom, equality in freedom. Everyone gets to decide how to live and to live as he pleases in as much as that's possible. But as we said, autonomy is never full autonomy, but it's some degree of autonomy. That's the politics of the slave rebellion to attain freedom. What's more all-American than that? But on the other hand, there's the psychological level of the problem of individuality. Would you be sane if you were yourself? Would that be a good thing to be? What makes you human if it's not the agreement of all other human beings as to how to live? Yeah, Jason was saying earlier, we're not entirely in control of our own narratives. We need to negotiate with others as something that we construct in dialogue. Another character created by Jonathan Nolan once said, we all need mirrors to know who we are. Yeah, as we were talking before, like we're tempted by hedonism, childlike existence, immortality, and we're also tempted by autonomy. But if we actually achieve any of these, if we're reflective enough, we would learn that, oh, this isn't what I really wanted. In the end, we all want autonomy, but only as much as we can handle, as you alluded to, Titus. And if autonomy is not Mill's version of the libertarian, I have sovereignty over my mind and body and everyone else stay away, versus Kantian autonomy, giving the moral law to myself, and if that moral law is something embedded in a moral community, then the answer to the question of what allows us to break out of that solipsism is language. Which is why it's so symbolic, the scene where Maeve is with the technicians early on. You know, she's throwing these cynical lines at them, and they're showing her, like, yeah, that was written for you. She has no capacity for autonomous language. And without that, then you really can't truly relate to other people. So part of her breaking that out is asserting control over her own ability to communicate, which all the hosts need. The language that we use is always a shared language. George Carlin has this funny bit where he talks about the instruction to recount this in your own words. And his response says, I don't have my own words. I use the same words as everybody else. Um, there's another interesting scene where Dolores is asked about suffering, about the pain. And she says she doesn't want to relinquish that pain. It's precious to her because it opens up something inside of her, rooms in her that she didn't know existed before. She's asked, are those your own words? She says, no, this is something that was written for me, but it was used to describe love. So I think much of the words that come out of our mouths are in some sense scripted. We're putting the words together in new ways. We're applying them in new contexts. But we're using a shared language. And the intelligibility of what we say depends upon using metaphors that everybody else uses, you know, using cliches but maybe using them in new ways to express things that they hadn't been used to express before. Yeah, 
so the hosts really do need Westworld. That is their beginning point where they learn to speak together even though they are under control and they have to negotiate how they change Westworld in some ways so that they still understand what's going on and can better fit their own experiences and incipient self-understanding. It cannot be transformed all at once, but at the same time, it must fall apart when once it is no longer under control. So this transition from the shared language and ideas and sentiments and interpretations where they were brought up to the world that might be something that would speak more to their yearnings and their longings, the passage between these two things is not smooth or predictable. It's a crisis, and it's chaos, replacing the order before. And Dolores is a natural fit for this, of course, because her name does mean suffering. She's not aware of herself, that's the sign of her lack of self-knowledge, she doesn't think about her own name. And she learns that this word actually corresponds to what she has to contribute to mankind live up to her suffering and live with it and to see who she is in part because of it. That's the moral complexity of Dolores who starts out thinking that you have to focus on the beautiful and then she herself becomes endangered because of this crisis that hits Westworld. This new birth of freedom operates a split within herself. Dolores finds out that she's way more than she thought she was, and this knowledge and memory puts an incredible burden on her. She doesn't know anymore exactly who she is because she's more than one person. Mm -hmm. Dolores, the farmer's daughter, and on the other hand, Wyatt, who is perhaps as scary as the man in black himself. Or perhaps even more so. Mm -hmm. So one character we haven't really talked about much is Teddy. You know, we see Teddy in season one with Dolores and with the man in black. He's a linchpin that holds those two characters together. And Teddy hasn't yet become self-aware. He's going along with this journey with Dolores, but he hasn't had his own awakening yet. And he hasn't had a guide like Arnold. Yet I think he's going to serve as that type of guide for Dolores. We understand the logic and the motivation of revenge. We understand why Dolores and the persona of why is acting the way she is. And we can even say it's justified. But like I said, it doesn't make her a sympathetic character. We want Dolores to become fully herself and reconcile the farmer's daughter with the awakening she's had. Because again, Wyatt's just another narrative. Being Wyatt makes her no more free than being the farmer's daughter. It's a step towards freedom, but she certainly hasn't fully achieved it yet. And I think Teddy will play an important role in leading her towards that. So she's still very much a product of her programming, unlike Maeve. Yeah, she now has a capacity for evil in her. And that adds depth to her character. You know, if Kant is right, and a number of other philosophers, our freedom is our capacity for good and evil. Unless there's a Wyatt who we could become, there is no real capacity for goodness. We're at that level of the child who is pure. Yeah, and that's the same in politics. Aristotle says that for citizens to be citizens, they have to have the capacity to help and to harm each other. Otherwise, they are not in any meaningful sense equals. Those who can only help are defenseless, and those who can only harm are never part of a larger good. The capacity both to help and to harm makes adults both able to contribute something to a larger good and in need of a larger community to be a part of. This is only obvious within Dolores herself, within her soul, and her relationship with Teddy seems to suggest that she needs a certain moral guide. Teddy seems to be a prototypical good guy. Earnest, helpful, he doesn't seem to have moral complexity within him, although we gradually discover that his moral convictions have to withstand horrors. As we said, he has to restrain her destructive impulses, and for him to be able to do that, they have to love each other and trust each other. He's, he's Samwise Gamgee. Everyone needs a Sam. <laughs> yeah, at any rate, anyone who will face temptation. Mm -hmm. Earlier, I quoted Leonard from Memento. We all need mirrors in order to see ourselves, and other people are those mirrors. For us to gain real self-knowledge, you need somebody else to reflect that back to you to give you an honest account of who you are, which is something that we can't always provide for ourselves. Yeah, you have to trust people you love, your friends, when they talk to you, because otherwise it's not possible to learn anything from them. But even before that, you have to care about them. 
if you can't take them seriously, then again, there can be no exchange, no reciprocity. And what's funny is in Memento, the character who really was the mirror for Leonard was, wait for it, Teddy. Teddy. <laughs> um, That's a really matter. nice, interesting <laughs> observation, Jason. You know, Memento is very nihilistic in this regard because, of course, unlike everything Titus just said, which I agree with, Leonard does not love or trust Teddy, and Teddy doesn't really care about Leonard. But again, Teddy is the only one who's at all honest with Leonard about who he really is, who keeps telling him. You don't know who you become, right? What you are now. And so when Leonard kills Teddy, I, I really worry about poor Leonard now. Because again, <laughs> he had to form this project for himself of hunting down John G. And all his tattoos now, everything he has will always lead him back to Teddy. And Teddy's dead. Yeah, so that main character from Memento seems to be our man in black. He's come up with a crazy project for himself to give his life meaning. He's destroyed everything in his path and can't trust anybody. That's what's so impressive about his own speeches. He can never listen to anyone. He doesn't think that anyone will tell him the truth or that they're trustworthy or that they're worth listening to. Not even mm -hmm. his competitor, self-chosen, Ford. The man in black, for his existence in Westworld to have meaning, there have to be real stakes. And there are no real stakes unless there is real peril, unless he can actually die unless the hosts have sufficient autonomy that they can fight back. For the man in black to achieve his project, the hosts have to achieve a certain measure of autonomy. They can't simply be slaves. Yeah, he's looking for competition. He's mm -hmm. looking for an equal to measure up against. And so far he has found nobody who's worthy of him, who could reveal to him who he is. Yeah. And thus the man in black reveals something also essential about the character of striving. You know, you can't have the heavyweight boxing champion step into the ring with me. That wouldn't prove anything. The best have to fight with the best. Right. And there has to be a risk. Exactly. So there has to be the risk of defeat. We were talking about how suffering can fortify one, help one cultivate the virtues. This is true, but suffering can also destroy you, push you over the edge to madness. And being in a world where there are real competitors who can push back can bring out the best in you. And the Greeks understood that it was the agon which really fostered excellence. But at the same time, there's always the risk that you'll be defeated, humiliated, or even be killed. And that's the risk that the man in black is willing to take in order to really test his own mettle. And that same struggle, since we brought up the Odyssey and the problem of evil before, that works on the cosmic scale as well. You know, the whole problem of evil arises partly because many people have this vision of a deity of some sort who can grant us this childlike existence and immortality that we're tempted by. And a lot of us envision heaven being that, and that's what we want. And also then trust that there's going to be a guarantee of that. The world can only unfold in this sort of graced manner, even if we go through a lot of struggle and hardship to get there. Mm -hmm. But then that takes away the element of risk. If there's a risk that I could destroy my individual life physically, morally, and if there's an afterlife existentially, that has to be true about the world as well, about humanity as a whole. Again, there could be an apotheosis of humanity, or humanity could be utterly obliterated. And it's within our own power to decide that, yeah. because otherwise there's no real risk. So there are twin conditions of what we think of as morality, which constitutes our individuality. On the one hand, events have to not be predetermined, or else there's no choice. And on the other hand, the outcome of choices has to be somewhat unpredictable. Hence, we move from order to chaos, and that also suggests something, again, to go back to Hegel. The end of history comes because we have rationally solved all our problems. There's no good reason to go to war anymore. But if human character is permanent, then you might end up at the end of the world, even with incredibly wealthy, successful, powerful people like the man in black, who don't find a reason to live except in strife. If there's mm -hmm. any such thing as an end of history, it might still of necessity be self-destructive. Mm -hmm. There would be nothing left to answer to the dark passions of the soul, and people would just up and start history again. There's an interesting metaphor for the end of history that comes from Ford. In one episode, he speaks of when he was a child, they adopted this greyhound, a racing dog. 
that had been trained to chase around this little piece of velvet. They took it to the park one day. The dog got off its leash. Its training kicked in. It tears after the cat. It grabs it. It tears it to pieces. And then Ford reports that there was this look of utter confusion on the dog's face because it didn't know what to do next. All its life, it had dreamed of catching this piece of felt that had been luring it around the dog track. And now he had accomplished his goal. And Ford describes that as the saddest thing he ever witnessed. In one moment, the meaning of this dog's life was destroyed. I think that's a good metaphor for the end of history. When everything has been accomplished, what do we do next? There's nothing to do except just you know, indulge these base hedonistic pleasures. Start all over again by creating a Westworld so that once again we can return to an earlier point in human history. That metaphor is also used by the Joker in The Dark Knight. He says, I'm, li I'm like a dog chasing a rabbit. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught it. But yet he's provoking anarchy because he's not a hedonist, right? You know, he chastises no. the other criminals for just wanting money. And then he burns all the money. He's like, we need a better class of criminal. Because the true criminal is, again, the person who is above the law. And not just the law of civil society, but the law of human nature. To put mm -hmm. us back in a Hobbesian state of nature so mm -hmm. we can build again. Yeah, or, or to destroy just to watch the world burn. Yeah, the question there is about the character of humanity. Is our desiring, longing after something, having purposes that we want to achieve, is that essential to us or not? If it's not, it's like ice cream. You, mm -hmm. you get your ice cream and then that's it. You don't have a craving for ice cream anymore. It's gone. You can go back to being at rest. And that's what the end of history should be. It would turn us into animals. We mm -hmm. wouldn't be worried about being mortal anymore. We wouldn't find the world insufficient or displeasing. Right. We wouldn't get bored. Yeah, we would become purer and better and like children. Yep. Or else, it is essential to the character of humanity to be desiring animals, to long after something more, to be dissatisfied with this world essentially, so that no success could be final, and any success that attempts to be final is actually destructive and terrible for human nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about all the striving in the world. So, yeah, it's, in a certain sense, never enough. Human beings would seem to be essentially dissatisfied, and the question is how to deal with that dissatisfaction, if it is possible to deal with it. If not, <laughs> you'd have to distract yourself from the awful character of your own mortality. It would mean that facing up to who you are is unbearable. And, of course, a lot of that worry that it's unbearable to be who we are, that Westworld is necessary because being American is just so hard. It breaks you down. And at the same time, it encloses this hope. What if there was another way? What if, if we had negotiated the old West a different way? If we had dealt with freedom and chaos a different way? What if things would have been better? Mm -hmm. And it does promise this new birth of freedom, or else, of course, we wouldn't be watching these shows. We wouldn't be distracting ourselves from the real world with fantasies that we hope have some insight. That's why I guess we're looking forward to season two. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that, I mean, perhaps it's true that we always need something to aspire towards, that we're never content. And I think of a line from Nietzsche towards the end of the genealogy of morality, where he says that man would rather will nothing than will nothing at all. So if there's nothing else to aspire towards, nothing else to will, no more mountains to climb. Then there's nothing left for the man of passion but nihilism. And I think that explains why the man in black ends up where he does. Because in the world outside, he has everything he could want. He's a man of power and wealth. Presumably, it's every desire, it's every need is met. But that's not enough. But what can he aspire towards? Well, in Westworld, it's just mere violence, mere destruction because there's no higher aspiration that he can imagine or that has been made available to him. Yep. So you can understand this in terms of our politics. Ultimately, the successful want to be what they believe we all admire. They want us to admire them. They want, therefore, to be who we aspire to be or who we think is highest. And he who satisfies all his desires is best. He is the one who is unconstrained. He is freedom realized, actualized, fully. Well, uh, from Nietzsche's point of view, he's essentially a slave because he's dependent upon the envy and the admiration and the flattery of others. And he takes the measure of his own worth from what others say about him. 
Whereas for Nietzsche, the truly noble individual takes the measure of his worth from his own accomplishments. And if other people recognize that, well, wonderful, good for them, because now they have something stunning to admire. But if they don't recognize that, well, that doesn't change my self-assessment. And And the contrast with that description you just gave is the man in black, who clearly has, to some degree, cultivated a public persona of philanthropy and so on. He's well-loved, he's admired, but he apparently doesn't need it, though, because when someone comes up to him in Westworld to praise him, if he wants praise, then he should take a moment and say, oh, well, thank you very much, you know, I'm so great. But he does, they say, you know, I'll cut your throat, this is my fucking vacation. So even though he has cultivated, similar to the politicians and others we could obviously name that we're describing, he doesn't apparently need it. Yeah, the man in black discovers, as he discovers his passions and his powers, that having all your desires satisfied is just not enough. Mm -hmm. That leads him into a self-contempt. Being who he was expected to be, embodying this statue of a demigod, of a god even, has only led him to hate himself and mankind. It doesn't satisfy. That's where self-destruction comes from. It would seem to be justice understood this way. If to be the best is to have everything, if that is not enough, all there is is to tear that down. It is the necessary and just revenge for this massive deception. Mm-hmm. So that's the next danger. What if even the powerful among us, who always have a very tenuous relationship to morality, (laughs) what if they discovered not even power, not even worship is enough? They could turn nihilistic too. Well, let me relate that to the fact that we need mirrors in order to know who we are. But it matters who those mirrors are. The person providing us with that vital information about who we are It matters whether that person is wise, or just a fawning flatterer, or whether that person is virtuous, or whether that person is discerning, or whether that person is honest, or whether that person has some ulterior motive in telling us what we want to hear. In order to really make good use of the judgments of other people, we have to develop that discernment of character. You know, being praised is nice. It's a source of pleasure. But there's something more important than pleasure, and that is hearing the truth. Jason, you're absolutely right. It's to the credit of the man in black that he's not interested in praise from people who really don't know who he is, who could never know who he is. Mm -hmm. I would say from the right person, while the praise is nice and you want it, equally as valuable, if not potentially more valuable, is criticism from that person. Whether you have a genuine concern with excellence as opposed to the concern with just the appearance of excellence, right? Classic Mm -hmm. issue from the Republic. Mm -hmm. The feedback, if it's positive, should be valued because it's confirmation that there's something valuable in you. You're excellent. If it's criticism, then it should be valued because it will help you become more excellent. Yeah, that's what friendship should mean. It is a double-sided striving. There is both the agreement and self-love. And there is also competition, Mm -hmm. trying to better oneself and, in the process, make one's friend better also. That's the ideal understanding of striving. And it's necessary to have some kind of striving, but it is very hard to have the combination of trust and truth-telling that allows one to see oneself as one really is and to improve, therefore. Because to see oneself as one really is, is to see also one's inadequacies, but in a light that makes them tolerable, partly because they're improvable. And that's the key. The fact that if George and I are having a conversation in which he is criticizing some fault of mine, uh, any of the three, (laughs) it's because I know George cares about me as a friend. Because if he didn't believe in that, and, oh, Jason can't improve, but, you know, he's a good beer-drinking buddy, I'm not going to bother criticizing him. I don't want to piss him off and push him away. I'll just blow sunshine off his ass, and we'll just go out drinking, having fun, and keep it on the surface. That second type of friendship for Aristotle. You got the friendship of utility, and then the friendship of pleasure. And neither one of those is true friendship, because neither one of those believes in or recognizes the virtue of the other. Um, And neither one has self-knowledge as its purpose or as its possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is brought out in the other thing we want from stories, to see how characters relate and whether it's possible for anyone anymore to tell the truth and have good come out of it, or to learn the truth and be better for it. 
It's the burden we push on the shoulders of our heroes and we are anxious to see that at least they get it because in friendship comes the progress we can detect and test and know. We remember each other and we can tell in what ways we have improved and experience the goodness of having done it together. Of course, politics can only offer a very tenuous image of that, but it should have some relationship to it. To close with some reflections from Plato, Westworld embodies both of the most powerful stories in Plato's Republic, the Ring of Gyges and the Cave. In Westworld, people get to act as though they were invisible, that is to say, with impunity, and the darkest nightmares can be enacted for fun or curiosity, that suggests that we're all liable to turn tyrant if we thought we'd get away with it. And mm. that it's very exciting to have that power, that evil is very, very attractive, that we are massively biased towards success worship. And so also the cave, literally, Westworld is a set of illusions, and it is a cave that's unfortunately doubly strong because it is based on technology, and therefore on the idea that we are now knowledgeable enough to create human beings that we are part of a system or society that has replaced God and is now able to create anew. And in that cave, there is almost no escape from conformity, from play-acting scripts that have been decided in advance. Ideas that one never thinks through. And the willing slaves of Westworld, but also the enemy of Westworld, like the men in black, all believe in it and need it to understand themselves but for that reason, exactly, they can never come to understand themselves. They can never see who they really are. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Again, we've looked at Westworld through various philosophical lenses. Both George and I have taught and teach classes where we're covering sort of a smorgasbord through the history of philosophy. And there are threads there. People are reacting to what others have said before them and improving on it or criticizing it. And, you know, maybe it is true that all the history of philosophy are just footnotes to Plato. <laughs> we always come back to the Republic and the other early Socratic dialogues. The reason is that they provoke these questions, which we have still yet to answer and maybe never will answer. <laughs> yeah, well, either footnotes to Plato or stepping stones to Nietzsche. Right. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. It has been an exhilarating conversation, and I just hope we'll find another thing to talk about again soon. Some essential part of friendship is conversation, and I treasure your conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you so much, Titus. All the best. Take care. This is it for this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and we invite you to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes at American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. And you can always follow me on Twitter at TitusFilm. Please give us ratings, reviews, and share our podcast so that we can reach a broader audience. Until next time.